0: That's right, Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com
1: No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular. The guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024.
0: I'd like to take a moment and have a real heart-to-heart with you. If you're able right now, place your hand over your heart. Can you feel it? That's your heartbeat telling you that you're alive. It's the same for a preborn baby. Their heart begins to form at conception, and at just three weeks, it's already beating. At five weeks, a baby's heartbeat can be heard on ultrasound. And that's why we've partnered with Preborn, because we need to help these precious babies. Every day, Preborn's networks of clinics rescue 200 babies from abortion. And say the keyword, baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby. You can also donate securely at preborn.com slash verdict. That's preborn.com slash verdict or pound 250 and say the keyword, baby. if you're ready to maximize your masculinity today, go to chalkc.h.o.q.com and use promo code BEN for a massive discount on any child subscription for life. CHOQ.com, code BEN, limited time offer. Subscription is cantable at any time. Chalk.com.
1: There was one thing that could have happened to make this 2020 election cycle more tense, more divisive, more dangerous, and it happened. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died at the age of 87. There is an open seat on the Supreme Court. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. Welcome back to Verdict with Ted Cruz. I'm Michael Knowles, joined by someone on President Trump's shortlist for the Supreme Court, Senator Ted Cruz. Though, Senator Cruz, though I will ask you again and again,
2: you have already expressed you are not interested in the job. Well, that, that, that's right. I'm not. Uh, but what I'm very interested in, and I'll tell you the reason I'm not interested in the job, is the fight we have in the Senate. Uh, the president has said rightly that he's going to make his nomination this week. That's the right thing to do. And I think it's critical that the Senate confirm that justice before Election Day. And, and that's part of the reason why I don't want to serve on the court it, it, it is that right now I got a job to do, which is lead the fight to get that justice confirmed. And I hope several more justices afterwards in the president's second term. So we've already established your position, which happens to be my
1: position, that absolutely the president should nominate a judge to fill this seat. Absolutely the Senate should confirm that judge. But this is, I guess, a controversial issue because Democrats are now pointing to 2016 when Justice Scalia died and Barack Obama put up Merrick Garland as a potential Supreme Court nominee. And then and current Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, no way, we're not going to have a hearing. You're not going to get
2: it in an election year. Democrats, senator are accusing us of hypocrisy. Well, and, and I think it's important for people to understand this issue because it, it's easy to look back to 2016 with Merrick Garland and all the positions were reversed. So the Republicans were all saying we're not going to fill that seat. I said that the day Justice Scalia passed away. And, and by the way, the Democrats were all saying we must fill the seat. We must fill the seat. We must fill the seat. And now four years later, everything is magically reversed. And Republicans are saying we must fill the seat. And Democrats are saying under no circumstances can you fill the seat. And, and, and the press is having a field day saying, of course, it's the Republicans who are hypocritical, not the Democrats. No, nobody seems to have noticed that right. Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Chuck Schumer and every bloody Democrat in the U.S. Senate has reversed 180 degrees. But But actually, if you understand the history – I don't believe either side is being hypocritical. I think mm. they're actually following the principles they believe in, and 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 so, look, someone could be forgiven for saying, well, what, what's what's different? What what's what does the Senate typically do? What does the President typically do? And, and and it turns out there's an answer. So this is not the first time this has happened in our nation's history. This has happened 27 times before. So wow. 27 times. There has been a Supreme Court vacancy that has occurred during a presidential year. And presidents have nominated a justice to fill that vacancy 27 times. That's what presidents do. It's actually an easy decision for President Trump's decision. By the way, a total of 44 people have been president of the United States half of them have faced this decision. 22, Hmm. half of the people who served as president have faced this decision, and every single one has nominated. Now, what has the Senate done? And and this is where it's important to understand why 2016 and 2020 are very, very different. What the Senate has done is very, very different depending on whether the Senate is of the same party as the president or a different party from the president. Those are radically different. So- of the 27 times there have been vacancies, 19 of them have occurred when the Senate is the same party as the the president. Of those 19, the Senate has confirmed 17. Huh. I would have guessed all 19, but 17 makes sense. Uh, uh, 17 of the 19, uh, when there when the president and the senator are of the same Senate uh, of the same party, the Senate confirms them. On the other hand, what about when there are different parties? That's happened 10 times in our nation's history. That happened with Merrick Garland. Barack Obama was a Democrat. There was a Republican Senate. Um, of the 10 times that's happened, the Senate has confirmed the nominee only twice. Yeah. So there's a pattern that goes back two centuries. You know, I got to say something here, Michael. It's easy for people to say, well, gosh, well, then it's just people being partisan. <laughs> well, th- there's more to it than that, actually. Uh, Because under our Constitution, elections matter. Uh, Under our Constitution, particularly right now, if you think about it in 2016, Donald Trump ran on the kind of justice he intended to nominate to replace Antonin Scalia and to replace any other justices that the vacancies that occurred. He was elected. That was a major reason he was elected. That was the biggest reason I voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton is the kind of justices he promised to appoint. On the other hand, Hillary Clinton promised to nominate liberal activists and the American people voted against her. Likewise, the U.S. Senate, a big, big reason we have a Republican majority in the Senate is that Republican senators promised to confirm constitutionalist judges to the court and to block liberal activists. And and the American people elected Republicans to the Senate in 2014, in 2016, and they actually grew the Republican majority in 2018. And, and, And so... When you have all these reporters pulling their hair out and saying, "Well, because you blocked President Obama's nominee, you have to block Trump's," that's just silly, and it's utterly a ah- historical, and it's not consistent with the history of the country.
1: Of course, this charge of hypocrisy. Uh, seems sort of silly to me because we elect our politicians to exercise the political power they can, and that will change by the circumstances. But I don't fault Barack Obama for putting up Merrick Garland. I don't fault Mitch McConnell for not taking up that nomination. (laughs) I I don't fault President Trump or the senators uh, in the GOP for now pushing forward this nomination. And obviously, I hope it goes through. On that point, Senator, since I am not in that exclusive club in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us what is going on right now? What, is the GOP, uh, what are the GOP senators discussing? H- how is this process going to play
2: out? Well, people are losing their minds. Uh, look, and, and, and I'm concerned. Uh, you, you mentioned in the open to sh- to show how tense things are. Uh, we've already seen, unfortunately, violence in the street. I'm very concerned it's going to get worse. You're seeing Democrats threaten it to get worse. You're seeing liberal journalists threaten threaten violence, and and uh, I think the Democratic senators are, are. Chuck Schumer has threatened. He's boomed. Everything is on the table, which, uh, frankly, I don't think is terribly consequential because they intended to be radical and extreme regardless. So they're still yeah. going to be radical and extreme if they win. Um, look, the big question is where are the Republican votes going to be? Every Democrat is going to vote no. So there are 53 Republicans, there are 47 Democrats. We know there are 47 no's. Um, I believe we will have the votes, and I believe it's important that we confirm this nominee before Election Day. To be honest, the 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 math I don't think plays out all that differently from impeachment. And you you and I spent – A lot of time in verdict talking about impeachment. Um, We knew at the time that the votes that were really in question, you had Susan Collins and she's already made public comments uh, suggesting that she does not want to confirm a nominee uh, before Election Day. You have Lisa Murkowski, who likewise has made public comments. Uh, And then, uh, look, the next votes that you look to, Mitt Romney obviously voted to convict the president of impeachment. I think a lot of people are wondering how Mitt's going to vote. I don't know. He hadn't said. He's playing his cards pretty close to the vest. So we'll see. I think even if the three of them ended up end up voting no, that's still 50-50, which means mm. the vice president breaks the tie. Um, I don't think there are for no votes. Now, it depends on the nominee. If, if something disastrous happened with the nominee, that could change the math. But assuming that the president nominates a serious credible judicial nomination. Uh, I think we'll have the votes to confirm the justice. And I think it it is very important that we do so before the election. And and let me tell you why. Joe Biden has been incredibly clear that that he intends to challenge the results of this election if he doesn't win. Um, he's hired a team of lawyers headed by veteran Supreme Court advocates to get ready to challenge the election. I think there are one or two outcomes on election day. Either Biden wins, in which case the Democrats celebrate and the media celebrates, or if Biden doesn't win, I think the chances are 100% they go to court and challenge the result. We know that Hillary Clinton has told Joe Biden under no circumstances should you concede this election, no matter what, um. This weekend, I, I did the George Stephanopoulos show, and and I made this point. And I got to say, and look, I I know George fairly well. I've done his show a number of times. This is the point he got most agitated about. Hmm. Uh, this is the point he he jumped in. He said, No, 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 no. It, it's Trump who's challenging the legitimacy election. <laughs> what what nonsense? And and, and it's very weird. The the, the the Democrats in the media. It's like a Freudian projection. They accuse. Yeah the other side of doing what they're doing given the the almost certainty that biden's going to be challenging the election if this seat is not filled by election day we would have eight justices on the court if the Mm. supreme court deadlocks four four it can't reach a decision so an equally divided court has no authority to decide anything and and understand the chaos of this so some people say, okay, fine. Well, what happens if you if, if you, you don't have a Supreme Court that can decide it? Well, I think the odds are very high that we will see if Biden loses, not just one lawsuit or one contested election like we had in 2000 in Bush versus Gore in Florida. You had multiple lawsuits, but just one state being challenged. I think Biden is likely to bring multiple cases all over the country in any close state and we could end up with conflicting decisions from conflicting circuit courts. And if there's no Supreme Court, you can't resolve those conflicts. And we could easily find ourselves in the midst of a constitutional crisis with this presidential election taking days and then weeks and then months with no resolution. And and that that kind of chaos, I don't believe Republicans should allow to happen. I don't think we will. But, but I think the stakes are, are very high to, to, to me, confirm the justice before Election Day so there's a full nine justice Supreme Court in place if and when there are challenges to the election.
1: This is a very persuasive argument that actually I haven't heard a ton of conservatives even talk about. And obviously conservatives are more eager to fill the seat than liberals or leftists are. But y- you've you've got this issue of possibly a Bush v. Gore, you know, 20 years later, but not just in one state. Now you could have it in, I don't know, three states, five states, even more. And you get all the way up to the Supreme Court. Imagine if Bush v. Gore had been an equally divided court. That would have been chaotic enough. Uh, that That is really not something to look forward to. So a very persuasive argument. You know, a a lot of this debate now over whether or not to fill the seat has come down to the personal wishes of Justice Ginsburg. You you have some Democrats now saying that it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish that no Republican fill her seat. And of course, I don't, know of any dying wish clause in the Constitution. But regardless, we also have video of Justice Ginsburg saying now after the 2016 election cycle that the president absolutely must nominate a judge even in an election year. That the president does not cease to be the president just because it is an election year. So we've heard from her own mouth this idea that we should go forward with the nomination. We've heard from some people, I suppose, who knew her that she wouldn't have wanted them to. It occurs to me, Senator, you have met uh, Justice Ginsburg on a number of occasions. You've or- argued cases before the Supreme Court. Do you have any personal insight into the justice, any personal reflections
2: now that she's passed? Well, well, sure. Look, I, I, I did know Justice Ginsburg personally. Um, I argued before her nine times. Um, she, she was brilliant. Um, her personal story is, is remarkable. I mean, she was born and grew up in New York City, Uh, she ended up going to Cornell. She went to Harvard Law School, was one of the very first women ever to go to Harvard Law School. Um, Her husband uh, got a job at a New York law firm, and so she transferred from Harvard to Columbia, and she graduated from Columbia Law School, graduated tied number one in the class. Hmm. She was on the Harvard Law Review. She was on the Columbia Law Review. And, you know, it's an amazing thing when she was coming out uh, of Columbia Law School, She applied for a Supreme Court clerkship with Justice Felix Frankfurter, renowned liberal justice, and he turned her down because she was a woman. He wouldn't hire a woman despite she had professors from law school making the case for her, but she got denied the clerkship. She had a hard time getting hired as a lawyer, and it's it's actually quite an amazing thing. Sandra Day O'Connor, who came out of Stanford Law School – she was number three in the class – both of them were offered jobs as legal secretaries. I mean, you want to you want to talk about serious discrimination? Um, they're graduating at or near the top of their class, and they can't get hired as first year lawyers. Justice Ginsburg ended up becoming a professor, and then becoming a Supreme Court advocate. And she was actually one of one of the finest Supreme Court advocates to have ever mm-hmm. lived. You know, you know, when it comes to to to, to race and issues of equal justice before the law. Thurgood Marshall is is really the pioneer of of arguing cases to expand, uh, to to fight racial injustice. Ruth Bader Ginsburg did the same thing when it comes to gender inequality. And, And she had a litigation strategy where she would challenge laws that were designed to benefit women, to give special benefits to women, but she challenged them as being inconsistent with the Constitution's equal protection clause, that the Constitution, she would argue, mandated that you treat men and women the same. And she really pioneered a, a transformation in the law that, that I got to say, as, as the father of two daughters, I'm, I'm really proud that we have moved away from legal discrimination and, 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 and separate standards for men and women. And, and Justice Ginsburg, as an advocate, played a, a, a critical role in that hearing uh,
1: this sort of personal account from you is, is helping me to uh, bolster my sort of personal uh, like of uh, Justice Ginsburg, because, of course, very famously, she was friends with Antonin Scalia. And for a lot of conservatives, that's enough for
2: us to say, oh, she can't be all that bad. Uh, but yeah. uh, to hear these personal stories uh, does, does bolster that as well. Well, Scalia and Ginsburg really liked each other. And so it was interesting. Scalia was much closer to Gin- Ginsburg than, say, he was to Clarence Thomas. jurisprudentially they were much closer but personally and it was almost uh it was almost an odd couple uh friendship because Scalia was loud and boisterous and brilliant I mean Scalia was was an extraordinary person Ginsburg temperamentally was very quiet yeah she was very prim and proper she she had the personality almost of a librarian Hmm. but she was brilliant and it was interesting. She and Scalia enjoyed opera together, uh, and they would go to opera. And, and I think Scalia made her laugh. He was such an, an ebullient personality that, that that she enjoyed him. Um, you know, when I was arguing in front of her, her questions were always careful. They were incisive. She was a dangerous questioner. Uh, most of the big cases that I argued before her, she voted against me. Although, interestingly enough, one of the bigger cases I, I argued – was Medellin versus Texas, where Texas stood up and fought the world court and the United Nations and the president of the United States. And I argued it twice, won 5-4 the first time, 6-3 the second time. The first time I won, the 5-4 included Justice Ginsburg. She was the necessary fifth Mm -hmm. vote that if she had voted against the state of Texas, we would have lost. We lost Sandra Day O'Connor, but we picked up Justice Ginsburg as our fifth vote. And that was very important for the court ultimately striking down the world court and the president's overreach of power. I can tell you another Ginsburg story, which is uh, one of the cases I argued before the court was the Texas redistricting case. And you may remember that, that about 15 years ago, there was some news about justice Ginsburg falling asleep uh, at oral argument. Um, And it made the papers all over the place. Well, here's a bit of trivia. Um, the lawyer at the podium when she fell asleep was me. Um, it, <laughs> You're kidding. It, it was the Texas redistricting case. It was, it was an afternoon argument, which is unusual. Normally arguments are in the morning. This argument was from 1 to 3 p.m., uh, so it was double the length of a normal argument. Um, and, and so I argued for 50 minutes, and she put her head down. And she was out for a good twenty minutes. I mean, she was asleep. Um, and, and and at the time when I, I was teaching uh, a class on Supreme Court litigation at, at University of Texas Law School, so I, I came back the, the next <laughs> week to my class, and my students were cracking up, laughing. I mean, this has made news that Justice Ginsburg had fallen asleep. And I, and I told her, I said, "Look, you know, th- th- this, I told my students, "I said, listen, that's really what every advocate aspires to." <laughs> to render your adjudicator unconscious. Yeah, that's through the, through the power of your arguments. So. Well, I joke there's a way you do it, which, which is you speak in a soporific tone and you gently rock side by side and you just knock them right out. <laughs> and interestingly enough, in that case, Justice Ginsburg did not need to be awake to vote against me. She voted in dissent. Fortunately, I won the case 5-4, but she was on the dissenting side. One other Ginsburg story I'll tell. Yeah, When I started my career as a law clerk for Chief Justice William Rehnquist, the chief liked Justice Ginsburg. Um, He thought she was a very careful lawyer. And if there was a case um, whose legal outcome the chief didn't like but he was in the majority and there were some instances where the votes on the court were with the left and the chief would be with the majority – Justice Ginsburg was the, the the liberal justice he most liked to assign the opinion to mm. because she was a very careful lawyer. And so if there's a particular issue that he may have not been thrilled with the legal outcome, he knew that she would just resolve that narrow issue before the court yeah. and oh. wouldn't write this this undisciplined opinion. Uh, you know, it would be interesting. Justice Souter, who was on the court, if he had a majority opinion, he could drop footnotes that would wreak havoc to whole other areas of law. <laughs> right. And, and, and Ginsburg wouldn't do that. She would focus on the issue. So Ginsburg, by far, was who the chief most liked to assign it to if it was going to be someone from, from the left on the court. Well, this brings us to a mailbag question that that's came out to me,
1: and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it. This is from Rogue Millennial, who says... Obviously, so much of the debate over Justice Ginsburg's old seat and the filling the vacancy comes down to Roe v. Wade. It comes down to abortion. And Rogue Millennial asks, if a conservative majority SCOTUS considers overturning Roe v. Wade, is the wiser path to overturn it simply and return legislative power to the states? Or should they or would they seek to go further and to rule on the 14th Amendment as protecting the unborn regardless of state laws?
2: So that's a that's a very savvy question, and 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 it's important to highlight what Roe versus Wade did because a lot of people don't know. I mean, they know they've heard of the case, they know it has to do with abortion, but they don't actually understand what Roe versus Wade did. So Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973. Prior to Roe versus Wade, abortion was a state law matter, and each state yeah. had different laws on abortion. Some states were quite permissive with it; some states were quite restrictive with it. What the Supreme Court did with Roe versus Wade is, is largely took it out of the hands of the elected legislatures. So if Roe versus Wade were overturned, it wouldn't suddenly make abortion illegal. What it would do is return the decision to the states. And what we would see as a practical matter is different standards, again, state by state. So uh, you're right now in California. Nobody thinks there's any possibility yeah. the California legislature would act to restrict abortion. That would be true in, in a number of the blue states. New York. In In other states, New York, California. In other states, you would see far more significant limitations put in place. And, and you know, there's a virtue to that, which, which is Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis talked about the 50 states as laboratories of democracy. What you would see – Is abortion laws that reflect the the values of of the citizens of each state. And as you know, I've got a book coming out, One Vote Away. Uh, It's all about the Supreme Court. And by the way, uh, I announced news uh, just this week, which we, we moved up the release of the book by a week. It was coming out October 6th. It's now coming out a week from today, September 29th. It's called One Vote Away. And It has an entire chapter on abortion and Roe versus Wade and partial birth abortion laws because one of the cases that I I litigated, um, I represented the states uh, as amici, as friends of the court, defending the federal partial birth abortion law. So the federal law banning partial birth abortion. The court upheld that 5-4. We're one vote away. If Joe Biden gets one more justice to replace one of the more conservative justices. We're one vote away from the Supreme Court concluding that every limitation on abortion is unconstitutional. Yeah. That that partial birth abortion is allowed, that no parental consent, no parental notification, that taxpayer funding is mandatory. Um, you know, we talked about challenges to elections in Bush versus Gore. I've got an entire chapter talking about Bush versus Gore and preserving democracy. Bush versus Gore was 5-4. Had had there been only eight justices, that decision could have deadlocked 8-8. And instead of lasting, or 4-4 rather, and had that happened instead of lasting 36 days, Bush versus Gore could have last lasted months and months and months. And so the book... One Vote Away, every chapter talks about a different constitutional right. You can pre-order it right now. The website is onevoteaway.com. Could not be more timely,
1: and people should certainly go out and go read One Vote Away. And Senator, you should probably get back to the Capitol and work on this issue of making sure that that vote goes into the hands of a good constitutionalist. Senator, thank you as always. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. 18
0: plus. Hollywood is under siege from an external force. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream is now making nightmares a reality. Many major films make choices to appease the Chinese Communist Party to be distributed in China. Join Tiffany Meyer, an investigative reporter in Hollywood Takeover, brought to you by the Epic Times, where she reveals how the CCP exerts control over some major studios don't miss the most important documentary about hollywood yet for a limited time watch the first 10 minutes for free at hollywoodtakeover.com slash ben hollywoodtakeover.com slash ben